morning. How are you? Good. Happy Father's Day. If you're a dad or if you're a dude, whatever, like happy Father's Day. This is, we get one day we to kind of celebrate this and, and people champion this. And so uh, if you're here today, if you're a dad, if you hope to be a dad, if you're a son, or I don't care, whatever, if you, if you have a Y chromosome in this gender unclear society, we want to celebrate you. That covered, that, that covered it, right? Oh, good. All right. So here's what I heard. On Friday night, if you want to come and bring your kids here for a few hours for free, we're going to show them movies you would never show them. We're going to feed them foods you would never feed them. We're going to get them all jacked up on sugar and soda, and we're going to send them back home with you. That's what I heard, I think. Isaiah 21 is where we're going to be. I will tell you this. So as we lean into Father's Day, um, consider, okay, do we do something kind of one-off for Father's Day or just look at the passage that we're in? And I think this passage caters itself to men in general, but it's still something for all of us. And so it's not specific to dads or, or uh, to anybody in particular. I want to tailor it a little bit for men. But when I say men, ladies, I just want you to ask yourself where you fit in this as well. This is really a calling to all people who follow Jesus. And so we're going to do that this morning. If you are watching us online, I know our online community has been growing. And so we're glad you're here. We're glad they're here, right? So we're good. In fact, if you're watching online, we'd love it if you check in too. That would be really helpful. The rest of you, would you guys stand with me, please? Each week... We take a portion of what we're going to study, we stand up, we read it, just I get to read this over you, and really what this is doing is, it's just saying, okay, it's, it's God's word that we come under today. It's not my word, it's not Generations Church, it's not, it's, it's nothing other than we are here to come under God's word, let God's word speak with God's authority, and I, I can only do my best in the, if, if I can give you God's word. And so Isaiah 21, I'm going to read just four verses out of that, starting in verse 6. For thus the Lord said to me, go set a watchman and let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, upon a watchtower I stand. O Lord, continually by day at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen, and pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Let's pray. God, because we gather this morning because of you, to worship you, to grow in you, to grow in the gospel, to grow nearer to Jesus. We read these words, Fallen is Babylon. And we remember, God, that you will, that you will overcome all that is evil. All that is evil in our lives, and, and God, ultimately, all that is evil in this world. And so you call men of faith, as well as women of faith, but you call us as men uniquely to be watchmen. To be those who look and those who seek to understand how do we guard our homes, our families, our communities, our church. 
And so, God, you call us to be watchmen. So as we, as we see that in the passage today, I pray that you, would, that you would challenge us, that you would motivate us to be better. God, for all of us, whether we're fathers or not, that we would see in ourselves a tendency towards misplaced hope and trust. So, Jesus, it's because of you that we're here. You loved us first. We're responding to you. So, Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So for everyone, I just uh, uh, kind of a starting point. If you are in the Bible, Isaiah 21, if you need a Bible, there's one on the seats in front of you. If you have our app, hit the Bible. There's a Bible built into the app. Here's just kind of a main idea for today. God's people throughout history struggle with trusting in earthly things more than trusting in God. All of us, and so especially husbands and fathers, but all of us are to watch over ourselves and our families to see where we are truly placing our hope. So the setting today is another prophecy against Babylon, and we've seen this now a couple times, is God is unfolding prophecies over the surrounding nations that have oppressed his people. But the book began with the first 12 chapters of God speaking out against his people. The people of God that should have been followers of God, that should have been obedient worshipers of God, have not been. And because of that, slowly but surely, God has just lifted his hand off of them. And the surrounding nations have come in and oppressed them. The things that the people of God were doing were, were, were similar things to what we do, trusting in things rather than trusting in God, trusting in other power rather than trusting in God alone, allowing the worship of others to come in and infiltrate and, and just cloud up worship of God. And so as God, just, as God speaks out judgment over his people, say, listen, unless you return to me, I will crush you. Twelve chapters, a decade of calling them back, and this is generations into their disobedience, other prophets calling them the same thing, telling them the same things. So God lifts his hand off them, and the other nations are coming in and conquering them. At this point, Assyria has already conquered Israel and Judah. Babylon is rising up. And Babylon will eventually overcome them. But the people of God right now are not trusting in God. They haven't returned to God. In fact, what they're hoping is for a different empire to replace Assyria. And they're trusting in the people around them, the powers around them, the things around them. They're trusting in them rather than returning to God. So Isaiah 21, we'll start off in verse 1. It says, The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds and the Negev swept, sweep on it, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. So this wilderness of the sea is kind of a play on words. Assyria, uh, excuse me, so Assyria's in power. Babylon has been nicknamed the land by the sea. So think of like we have a nickname. So city by the bay, what is that? San Francisco. So land by the sea was Babylon. And so God is, is calling them now wilderness by the sea. Like I'm going to desolate the land that you know as fertile, as good, as productive. I'm going to come in and I'm going to strike down this land. I'm going to take everything out of it. And so this, this idea of speaking into this. Now, again, as we talked about before, but if you're joining us maybe for the first time, Babylon is not only a real nation, but Babylon was an incredibly pagan and corrupt and sinful and worldly nation. And so, I mean, just imagine this. If you're old enough, right, if the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones have an album named Babylon, right? 
Wow, we are really have grown younger, haven't we? <laughs> Never mind. They have an album cover named that. You can kind of get an idea what the city used to be like. All right, I'll find a YouTube reference later. Okay, so here we go. So there's this worldly wicked nation that is in power. And they are everything corrupt, everything sinful, everything in fact that Israel and Judah have been called to not be. So when God speaks out this prophecy against Babylon, it has really two implications. One is God is actually going to judge the nation Babylon. But long after God judges Babylon, destroys Babylon, and again, like Babylon doesn't exist today, right? So long after God does that, the Bible continues to use Babylon as a type, a type of sinful worldly nation. And so when God speaks this over Babylon, yes, he's going to destroy this nation, but that image will continue to talk about God ultimately destroying worldliness and evil. And so that's the context. So there's kind of a dual nature today as we read through this. And so just kind of as a, as a note or as a place to think through, the nation of Babylon represents misplaced hope and worldly power might, wealth, pleasure, etc. In Isaiah's day, they are looking to human solutions apart from God rather than seeking God for their relief. Let me, let me qualify that for a bit. When Israel and Judah are looking to Babylon, hoping that Babylon will come in and overcome the other nations that are persecuting them, the people of God are trusting in Babylon. The people of God are misplacing their hope in worldly power, might, etc., and they've, been, and they've been so much trusting in this that this Babylonian culture has come in and brought in false worship to the people of God and drifted in. And so their misplaced hopes and their misplaced trust is causing them to compromise their worship, and they've completely stopped trusting in God. And so Babylon stands as not only a real nation, but as a type that even we can see today that we trust in our culture we trust in American power and might, often more than we trust in God. What do we trust in when there's an invading army or terrorism or something? Do, do we place all our faith in God or do we place our trust in things that our human hands can do? And so this is where God's people are. And they are trusting in wrong things. And so for all of us, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter. All of us have this tendency. And so this message is for all of us as God speaks out over Babylon and anyone trusting in Babylon. But then God is going to say something unique, and we'll kind of tailor that to the men in the room. But again, it applies to everyone. So the seductive power of Babylon is what we're talking about even as we speak today. Verse 2, a stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O media. And all the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. So betrayers betrayed. So here's what's going on in the history of this. Some of you are super interested in this. Some of you are going to check out right now. I'll make it quick. All right? Babylon, in order to overcome Assyria, is partnering with the Persians and the Medes, right? If you've heard of the Middle Persian Empire. So they're partnering together. They're making treaties with surrounding nations so that they can gather up enough power to overcome the big empire that's in charge. Make sense? So here's the problem. The people they're partnering with are going about to betray them, right? So they're going, to, they're going to turn on Babylon so the betrayer is betrayed. 
And so he's speaking into this culture, he's speaking into realities that are taking place as these people try and gather up strength to overcome their enemy. Now, Isaiah says this, he's writing about himself. Verse three, therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. Okay, we should pause so everybody keeps telling me I should say this. So, Rachel had her baby. Okay. Good? That wasn't a distraction at all, huh? Okay, good. All right. So, therefore, my loins are filled with anguish, says Isaiah. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I'm dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned into trembling. Isaiah is just caught again as God speaks to him about what God is going to do, Isaiah is caught up in the weight of this. Now, there's, there's a couple reasons. Maybe as Isaiah has had in the past, Isaiah's heart breaks for the people that are going to be destroyed. That's possible. Maybe Isaiah is just seeing the destruction of humans, destruction of cultures, destruction of people, real living people, pagan or not, oppressors of the people of God or not, Isaiah's caught in the idea, listen, these are real people that are going to die. We've seen that in another chapter. There's a second option, too, that the people of God have been so trusting in Babylon, overcoming the oppressors, that maybe as God strips that option away, maybe it's that. I tend towards the first, but really we don't know. But for whatever reason, as God pronounces this judgment over the Babylonian nation, Isaiah sees so much of what God is going to do, physical pain overtakes him. So either way, we should learn a lesson from either motive from Isaiah. In one place, we should, we should long for the redemption and healing of people that don't worship God, that people that don't know Jesus. We, we should ache until they come to faith. We should have such a love for lost people that, that we are physically compelled to sharing the love of Christ with them. So that's one. The other is if Isaiah is caught up in the idea that Babylon is going to be their deliverance, then we should also learn the lesson from, from Isaiah that we don't trust in human things. The human might, ability, power, will, that that won't save us, only God can save us. So either lesson, take either from Isaiah and ask ourselves, do we care enough about the lost to ache for people to know Jesus? Or have we so found ourselves caught up in the world that when that option is removed from us, the, the, a physical fear and illness sets in? So as God speaks these words, Isaiah physically is responding to this. Verse five, they prepare the table they spread the rugs, they eat and they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. So I want to read this verse a couple times. The entire passage really is summarized in this verse. Other, other prophets like Jeremiah write about this. Daniel 5 is given over to this. If you want to go and spend time and read Daniel chapter 5. But here's what happens. So Daniel 5.1 is this verse right here. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Let me, let me give you some context for this verse in Daniel. 
So if you're reading the prophet Daniel, Belshazzar's in power, it's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he is in power, and these armies are arising, they're surrounding Babylon. They're getting ready to come in and conquer, but Babylon, thinking they have treaties with Media, treaties with Persia, that they have the numbers on their side, thinking that they have everything in control, as the armies are coming closer to Babylon, they throw a party and get drunk. Literally, they throw a massive banquet instead of what normal folks would do, normal, normal kingdoms or normal armies would do. They would ready themselves. They'd all be standing at the wall. They'd be watching out, watching as the armies came in. They would be on high alert. Belshazzar is getting trashed inside the palace, literally. His pride and his arrogance have brought him to this place where he thinks everything he trusts in is enough. And so he calls all his buddies in, and they have this big bash, and they all eat a ton and drink a ton and get drunk. So here's how the story unfolds. Daniel uh, verses 4 and 5 says this, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. If you know this story, you know what's going on. If you've never heard this story, this is fun. So this is fun to read about it. Would not be fun if you were there. Okay, so here's the deal. They're partying, they're trusting what they trust in, and they're sitting there, and what I didn't read, just to shorten and condense the story, is the things that they're eating and drinking out of are the things that they took from Israel and Judah when they destroyed the temple. So like their worship items are the cups and the plates and the things that they're using. So they're completely downplaying the God of the universe. And they're completely downplaying the human armies that are surrounding them, and they are highly overestimating their own might. And so in this context, all of a sudden, in front of everyone, a, a hand, reminds me of the Adams family maybe, begins to write on the wall. And it writes these four words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Now as far as anybody can tell, that is not words that exist in any language. And so what happens is the king sees these words. He has no idea what it means. And so he calls in all his astronomers and all his psychics and all his mediums and all his wise men. And he says, somebody, man, I will put royal robes on you. I will give you a ton of gold. Here's the deal. Just tell me what it means. Because we just all saw a hand right on the wall. It has their attention right now. No one can give them an answer. And so a man named Daniel a Hebrew slave that has been brought into and raised up is called in. And he's called in to come in and tell them, what is this? In fact, he, he offers Daniel money and robes and the whole thing. And, and Daniel just says, keep it. I don't want it. But I'll tell you what he said. So verse 25, Daniel 5, verse 25 says, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of that matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel says, here's the meaning. 
Your days are over. You've been measured and you are found wanting. The Medes and the Persians are going to come and conquer your kingdom. Verse 30 and 31, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So imagine this night at a party at your friend's house, right? So here's this king thinking he's got it all handled, trusting in the things that he thinks he can control. And God says, you think you've got control, let me show you something literally, miraculously writes on a wall, literally has one of God's servants, Daniel, translate when no one else can. Your days are numbered. Your days are over. You have been measured and found wanting. And you, your kingdom, will be given over. And that night he dies, and Darius the Mede conquers them. There's some great stories about how they do this. They divert the water that runs into the city so that the water is only about knee deep and they walk in where only the water could have gone in and they conquer this drunk and gluttonous people because these people that were no longer watching out for danger get conquered in their comfort. A people trusting in their abilities get conquered in their comfort. That should speak to us. That should warn us. Verse 5, let's read that again. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. So they prepare the table, so they do all this. They throw this party, but the second part says, Arise, O princes, oil the shield. It's saying, here's what you should do. Now remember, this prophecy takes place long before this thing actually happens. So the prophecy is, listen, you're going to do this, but here's what you should have done. You should have been preparing for war. You shouldn't have been so comfortable, right? Arrogance and power. We got that on this, on this uh, slide, please. Sometimes we can all get caught up in our own power and might that we forget that God is sovereign over all life. We forget that the very breath we breathe is granted to us by God and our days are a gift. We forget that we can't trust in this. That yes, we are the greatest nation on the planet right now, the most mighty nation on the planet. That doesn't mean tomorrow we can't lose that. It doesn't mean that we, yes, we have a savings in the bank, or we own our house, or we have a job, or we've got a spouse, or we've got kids. That doesn't mean we can't lose that in an instance. I'm reading a book that quotes a guy that I had the privilege of meeting a while back, but a, guy, a man named Jerry Sitzer, who writes a book called Grace Disguised. And he tells the story of, his, of him driving down the street with his family, his mother, his wife, his kids, uh, his two or three daughters, whatever he had. And in a car crash, somebody hits them, and he loses his mother, his wife, and one of his daughters in one moment. He will go on to champion how he saw God even more clearly in this grace disguised that he got to see God, not just ache for what he lost. Of course, it was horrendously hard. Of course, it was incredibly hard. But that he found grace in that. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed that the things that we count on can't be taken. Verse 6. Now, I'm going to transition again. I'm going to transition this mostly towards men, but you guys get it. This is for all of us. Verse 6, For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. 
Now, in the story, 2,800 years ago, God is telling Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to be the watchman for the people. I want you to be the guy who looks out. So if you don't know what a watchman is, consider this. Imagine militarily there's someone that would sit up on a hill or sit up high on the wall of a castle who would look out across the land, and they are on the lookout for trouble that's coming. So they're there looking for invading armies, looking out into the distance, looking out to the the horizon of the land, and keeping watch that the nation remains safe. So God is calling Isaiah to do that. But God is calling us also, especially us as men, men that are called to be pastors in our home, shepherd our home, lead our home spiritually, men that are called to care for the church and lead the church, that he's calling us to be watchmen for our homes, for our families, for our neighborhoods, for our communities, for our churches, for our country, that we should be the people watching. So being a watchman, men, we are called to be physical and spiritual watchmen over our wives, children, church, and community. Men today have often given this role over to their wives or left it undone. Men, we have abdicated our role more and more as time has gone on. And we need to be the men that rise up that look out, that are the watchmen for our families, that stand on the high place prayerfully, discerningly looking out that we watch over our homes, our families, our churches, our communities. Ephesians says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, splendor, talking about Christ also, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What Paul says here to husbands is that as Christ is to the church, so we are to be to our wives and our families. That we are to be the ones that lead spiritually. That doesn't mean that we come over, that we lead as Christ led. We lead a servant lifestyle leading our families towards Jesus. Always being the one prayerful and washing our lives with the water of the word, raising our children to know Jesus. That's our call. That as men, it is our job, that our responsibility, that one day we will stand before Jesus accountable for our family and what we have done with the gospel and our family. I think we are far, far too concerned with what colleges our kids go to or what something else happens to the exclusion of the gospel taking root in their lives. That's great, they got a scholarship, but did they know Jesus in their lifetime? Verse 7, when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. So let's draw this out a bit. So Isaiah, God is telling Isaiah, and Isaiah is writing to us, and he's saying, listen, here's what a watchman does. He looks and he listens. He sits from a, pl- a vantage point that gives him vision, that he does this so that he can watch out, so that he can watch, that he can see, that he can listen, that he can see danger when it's coming. So men, do we, do we take a place of vision spiritually for our homes and for our families? Do we spend that time in prayer over our homes, our wives, our kids? Do we take on that role of I am watching for evil to come to us? I am watching for, for, for bad to come towards us, that I can see it coming, that I can be in a place of watching out for my home. A watchman is alert is our next slide. God calls us to keep our eyes and ears open, being alert to any misplaced faith in our lives as if it were an invading army. 
Idolatry draws our heart away from God and towards things that can never save us. Do we find ourselves trusting in the human things around us that we think make us secure? Do we place our trust in things that can be taken away in an instant? Or are we looking down the road and making sure that the gospel is central in our lives? That Christ is our foundation. That Christ is where we place our faith. Verse 8, Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually, day by day at my post, I am stationed whole nights. Listen, listen to that and ask yourself, man, man, am I doing this? Am I stationed every day, every night, watching out, looking down, looking out as far as I can to see what's coming our way? Or have I abdicated that role to my spouse or to the church, to the pastor, to this, to that? Have I given up the role of making sure my family is spiritually cared for to someone else? Or is it not getting done? A continual watch, the next slide. We are to be continually engaged in things that keep us alert to God, such as, this isn't a complete list, but such as prayer, reading the word, fasting, etc. We need to engage the church, community groups, discipleship, to help us keep watch. Engaging in life with other believers allows us to keep watch with one another. Yesterday, we had a cool men's event. We went out. We got off-road, we did some stuff outdoors. I think we didn't commit any felonies at all, I don't think. Mostly legal, mostly safe. It was a good day. But what we really want to foster is the relationship from one man to another. Many men here are just an island to themselves or an island to their families. Not only are we called to keep a spiritual watch out, but we're called to do that in community. That way we can help. You can't just have a kingdom that's four-sided or however they were, but you can imagine a four-sided kingdom with gigantic walls. You can't just have one watchman. One watchman can only see so far and can only see in one direction. So they would post many that would work together. And men, we should be that. And we don't do that very well. Women do that way better than we do that. True? Fair? We need to be better men. We need to be better men. And we need to be better, men. Yeah, both that. Good thing I don't speak for a living or anything. Verse 9, And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So this is the point where God says, Listen, I will destroy everything else. Men, are we rooted in the gospel enough to know that Jesus came and overcame the world and we place our trust in Jesus? That Jesus came and lived the life we were called to live, that we have failed. That Jesus came and died the death that we deserve, but he did it in our place. And then as he laid in a grave, our sins are covered. And as he rose from the grave, we are given a new life. And we are held accountable for that new life in the gospel. Yes, we get forgiveness. Yes, we get heaven. But we're still, we're still called to something here. And part of that is to understand that in the gospel, we are called to not trust in the things of the world. That we are called to place all our hope and faith in Jesus. That to be a Christian, which is a term that's incredibly watered down today. So to be a follower of Jesus, it means this. You follow Jesus and Jesus alone. You place your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. When times are brutally hard, you place your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
And Jesus has provided for you a community, his word, direct relation with him through his spirit, prayer, fasting, by, you name it. He's given us everything we need. But he and he alone is where we fix our eyes. First John says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Church, keep yourself from giving your heart, your mind, your trust to anything else. Jesus and Jesus alone is our salvation. Verse 10, he says, oh, my my threshed and winnowed one. So I will read that again in a minute. But here's the deal. We're writing back almost 3,000 years in a place that is predominantly agrarian. Most people living at this time either raised cattle and herds of something or grew food. That is the primary industries in Isaiah's day. Call that an agrarian society. They live from those two things. And there are, so there are images all throughout the Bible of threshing wheat. And they would go through and they would, they would go through and they basically beat the wheat to get the pieces of it out they need and the pieces they don't to separate those things. And it's often given to us as an understanding of what takes place in our life as we go through hard things to figure out what is good and what is not good. That we go through trials and struggles, that this life isn't easy, but as we do this pursuing Jesus, that God uses those trials, uses those hardships, uses the successes and the failures, that he uses all that to teach us, to guide us, to mature us, to grow us. And so listen to what he says. Verse 10, O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. So here's what he's saying. We'll put this on the screen. Sifting out false worship. While God simultaneously judges Babylon for their sins, he shows Judah and Israel how they trusted more in Babylon's might than in God's. Where do our hearts trust in human things and not in God's? How might we sift out the idols in our hearts? See, in the Bible, idols were often things made of stone or wood or gold or silver. Our idols are much more, uh, are, are much less um, visible. We don't bow down and, and pray at an idol. They're much more subtle. They're the, the jobs that we have, the education that we have, the money we have in the bank, the, the feeling you get when somebody walks in your home and they go, oh, you have a nice home. We have many more subtle idols than just walking in and having a shrine to Confucius or something. And they had much more pronounced worship of idols, but the same is true to us today. Wherever we give our hearts in a way that is only to be given to God, that is an idol. 500 years ago, Calvin, kind of the founder of our our kind of our stream of Christianity, he says, our heart is a factory for idols. It turns out idols day by day by day warning us that we give our hearts away to things way too easily. Verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma, one is calling to me from Sair, watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? So here's where we close today. As the people call out to the watchman, watchman, what time of night? Watchman, what time is danger coming? We offer that challenge. And I just, Men, if you would take that challenge, 
Let us take that role of watchman over our homes, over our wives, over our children, over our neighborhoods, over our communities, over our church, over whatever. Whatever God will place on you, let us be the watchmen. Let us be the ones that are looking for the places where we've turned and given our hearts to someone or something else. Let us be the ones that call our families, our churches, our communities back. Let us be the ones that stand fast in the power of Christ's spirit that we can lead well. Let's pray. God, as we gather this morning, we thank you for the words written so long ago to Isaiah. Powerful words, words relevant today, words that that sound as true today as ever, that we give ourselves away so easily, that we trust in human things, things we cannot control so easily. And God, it just as a bit of confession, our, our culture today, men in our culture, we have given away this position of being watchmen over our families. We've abdicated our role. We've, we've just either let it go undone or let someone else do it. God, let us hear those words the strongest, that we, we would raise up a generation of men who believe it is our responsibility to take the gospel and root it deeply in the lives of our family, that we are to make sure that the gospel proceeds to the next generation of our home, that we would know that we guard the gospel here in our church and we hand it off to those, to the next generation of our faith. Let us take this so seriously that we watch out for our homes, our communities, and everywhere they are, that we take our faith seriously and we take our responsibilities truly. Jesus, in all things, may we fix our eyes on you. As your word says, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. That you went to the cross for us. Let us fix on you, let, let us fix our eyes on you. You are our only hope. You are our only truth. In you we place our faith, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.